Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world marveled and followed the beast. Now because of the personal pronoun in the phrase, his deadly wound was healed, it indicates we're talking here about the leader and not the empire. So the Antichrist is in view. Many commentators, as we've already said, believe that somebody is going to try to assassinate the Antichrist. It's going to happen right around the midpoint of the last seven years. All right, Somebody's going to try to take this guy out. Probably gunshot to the head, left side of the head. We know from Zechariah's right eye is blinded, his right hand is withered. Uh, so we assume somebody tries to take him out with a gunshot to, to the left side of his head. And um, the world is going to think he's dead. How long? I don't know. I'm guessing three days. Because I think Satan is trying to counterfeit the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The devil, of course, is the satanic God the Father. The Antichrist is the satanic God the Son. And the false prophet is the satanic Holy Spirit. The demonic trinity. We've already talked about this, right? Um, but he's going to look dead to the world. And then miraculously, he is going to be resurrected. Now, I personally don't think he's going to be really dead because I don't believe the devil has the power to raise the dead. But you know what? It's not going to matter because Satan will present such a convincing counterfeit death and resurrection. The whole world is going to believe it was genuine. All right? And so in chapter 17, when the angel tells John, the beast was and is not and yet is, he's talking about how the Antichrist was alive, then assassinated, and then came back to life. However, we know he wasn't really dead and it was a fake resurrection, all right? That's the idea. All right, back to verse 8. It says that the beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Turn back to chapter 9. It's the first time we're introduced to this bottomless pit. The Greek is a buso. And it says in chapter 9, verse 1, that the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him, so this is not a real star, of course, or a meteorite. This is an angelic being who are sometimes called stars. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit, and then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth. These are demonic creatures. And to them was given power, as the scorpions of the earth have power. This bottomless pit seems to be a place of incarceration for the worst of demonic entities. It's locked, all right? And only the Lord Jesus has the keys of death in Hades, and so he allows an angel to open this thing, and out of it comes the smoke, uh, all kinds of demonic creatures upon the earth. We studied that in chapter 9. Uh, but also there ascends out of this bottomless pit a demon, some think even Satan himself, and that demon uh, kind of uh, incarnates the Antichrist. 
uh, chapter 11, verse 7 says, And when they finished their testimony, that's talking about the two witnesses now, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. This reference to the beast seems to be the demonic power behind the beast. The beast is a man. The Antichrist is a man. But at one point, either the devil himself or a very vile, vicious demon is going to inhabit this guy and will give him his real power, which, of course, comes from the devil himself. We already learned. But I think that Revelation 11, verse 7 coincides with Revelation 13, verses 1 through 4, in that after somebody tries to take this guy out and he's miraculously resurrected, at that point, many believe the devil will enter into him and, uh, you know, take possession of him or, again, some very powerful demon. And what's going to happen is he is going to be able to get up from, you know, the place where he was thought to be dead. He is go I believe he's going to go then directly and kill the two witnesses. Nobody has been able to kill these two guys. Now all of a sudden the Antichrist has the power to kill them. After he kills the two witnesses, he goes right from there into Jerusalem, and he might already be in Jerusalem, we don't know, but into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. He's going to set up his image in the Holy of Holies. He's going to demand to be worshipped as God. This is also when the Antichrist of the beast turns on the woman who John sees in chapter 17 riding this beast or controlling the beast. He is going to turn at this point on this world church. That's what this woman is. She represents the world church. And he needs her to gain power. But after he's fully taken hold of power, then he turns on her around the midpoint of the last seven years. He kills her, and he establishes a new religion where he himself is worshipped as God. As I said, this takes place right at the midpoint or right at the beginning of the last three and a half years. Now, as we've already said, the Antichrist is going to have satanic, supernatural powers, uh, charisma, brilliance, and eloquence, but he himself is a son of hell, and he is going to eventually go into perdition, or in other words, he will be cast into hell or the lake of fire. We read this in chapter 19, verse 20. This is when Jesus returns, of course. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped uh, worshiped his image, these two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. So they, both of them, false prophet and antichrist, are going to be cast into the lake of fire a thousand years before anybody else because um, the rest are not cast into the lake of fire until uh, after the great white throne judgment. We'll study that in Revelation 20. All right, back to verse 8. John said that, uh, or the angel, I should say, uh, and those who dwell on the earth will marvel, whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the, the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. This is the third time in Revelation where the book of life is mentioned. First time it was mentioned, I think, in chapter 3 to the letter to the church of Sardis. Next we read in chapter 13, verse 8, And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, the Antichrist, 
whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And here, once again, those that dwell on the earth will marvel and follow the Antichrist, those whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. The question is, how does a person get written into the book of life? The two main interpretations are these. One, God, before he created anyone, chose those who would be saved. He sovereignly predestined a group of people, the elect, to eternal life, wrote their names in the book of life, and the others he simply denied ever having a chance to receive Christ. In other words, they were destined, or the theological term is reprobated, to hell. In other words, they have no choice. God simply created, you know, all the people he's going to create in his mind. He knew there were going to be. He chose some for heaven, and the others he just decided he was going to send to hell. I don't hold that view. It's a Calvinist view. I can't get my mind around that view at all. The other view is that God, knowing all things, knew everyone who was ever going to live, who, who he would create, knew their hearts, knew when the gospel was presented to them that they would receive Christ as Lord and Savior, and based on that foreknowledge, he wrote their names into the book of life. I don't believe anybody is sent to hell who would have received Christ if given the right opportunity. I think that everyone who winds up going to hell, everyone whose name has not been written in the book of life, it's because they have rejected the love of the truth that they might be saved. Even though God has reached out his hand to them, he sent his son to die for them. God desires for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God is not slack concerning his promises of some kind slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, patient and so on, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God gives peace. That doesn't sound like a God who has just, you know, written a whole bunch of people off and said, well, you know what, tough luck. I don't want you in heaven. You've never done anything to me. You've never rejected my gospel or my son. But you know what? I'm just, I'm God, all right? And you're not. And I can choose who I want to make for heaven and the rest of you guys, you're going to hell. doesn't sound like a God, that kind of a God in the scriptures who says, come to me, please turn from your sins. Why will you die? I don't get any pleasure out of seeing anyone die and go to hell. I'm long-suffering and patient, giving you every opportunity to repent and come to my son. For my son, I love the whole world. And that's why I gave my only begotten son. That anybody who believes in him could have everlasting life, right? So if a person goes to hell, it's not because God didn't want them in heaven and didn't try to provide them opportunities to receive his son. I know that God knows the heart of every man and woman who has ever lived. And if a person's heart is open to the point where if they had the gospel, if they had the right information, they would receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. I don't care if God had to write it across the sky in letters of fire or send an angel from heaven to deliver the gospel to them. God will get them the information. God will never let anybody go to hell who wants to know him. That is my total conviction. So whatever your view is on the book of life, I believe the only people whose names are not written into the book are those who didn't want their names written into the book. And there are many of those. Verse 9. 
Now the angel says, now I'm going to explain these things to you, John, but I want you to know something. Here's wisdom, all right? Here's the mind which has wisdom. Now, that makes me feel kind of bad, because after I read this, I still don't quite get it. And so I'm thinking, well, I must not be very wise then. The angel says, look, I'm going to tell you these things, but I want you to understand something. It's going to require wisdom. Well, the wisdom, of course, the angel is referring to is the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, the wisdom of God, right? Now, fortunately, as believers, anytime we need God's wisdom, we can ask him. What did James tell us? If any lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives to all liberally without reproach. In other words, God will never scold you for asking for his wisdom. He wants you to ask for his wisdom. He wants to guide your life, right? And so it's not wrong to ask God for wisdom in any given situation. And it's especially good to ask him for wisdom when you're reading the word that he would reveal to you the proper interpretation, right? Jesus said the Holy Spirit, when he comes, is going to lead you into all truth. And I need that because the Spirit wrote this book through human agents. And if I want to know what's being said here, I need to take some time, pray, seek the Lord, and let him reveal it to me. And I'll tell you, he often does that by leading you into different parts of the Bible, which are parallel passages. And all of a sudden, oh, he uses one passage to illuminate another. That's happened to me many times, many times. All right. Here's the mind which is wisdom. Verse 9. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Now, once again, many associate the seven mountains with Rome and the papacy because Rome is a city that's well known to, be, to have been built on seven hills. The problem is the Greek word for this word mountains here is not the word for hill. It's the word for mountain, right? It's not seven hills. It's seven mountains. In verse 1, it says the woman sits on many what? Waters, Right? The woman sits on many waters, verse 1. And we don't have to speculate what that is because verse 15 says, Then he said to me, The waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. So if she sits on many waters, and those waters are peoples and nations and multitudes and tongues, then the seven mountains she sits on, which is a different metaphor, has got to represent peoples and nations and multitudes and tongues. More specifically, they refer to kingdoms or empires, which is confirmed in verse 10. Again, backing up to verse 9, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. The word there, beginning of verse 10, that's not there in the Greek. Let me just read it without it. The seven heads of seven mountains on which the woman sits are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other is not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. Well, let's try to unravel this a little bit. Again, mountains are often used figuratively in the Bible to represent governments or kingdoms. There's many examples of this. I'll give you two. Psalm 30, verse 7. David said, Lord... By your favor, you have made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face, and I was troubled. The reference there to my mountain is my kingdom. All right? My kingdom. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 35, when Daniel is interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream for him, 
He says, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image in its feet became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream a polymetallic 90-foot image, a statue, head of gold, shoulders and uh, arms of, of silver, uh, a chest and thighs of brass, legs of iron, ten toes mixed with iron and clay. And the interpretation was basically this. The head of gold was the Babylonian Empire. The, the arms and the chest of silver, that was the Medo-Persian Empire. The stomach and thighs of brass, that was the Grecian Empire. The legs of iron represented the Roman Empire, which divided into two parts, east and west. The ten toes made of iron and clay, they represent the final world empire, which is going to be a confederation of nations, ten in all, a revival of the Roman Empire, and yet because they're kind of a democracy and not monolithic, they're not going to be as strong as the Roman Empire was. But in the days of these final kings, Daniel said, the stone which you saw in Nebuchadnezzar not cut with hands is going to smite the image in its feet. The image is going to crumble and blow away like dust. And the stone is going to grow into a mountain that's going to fill the whole earth. That was speaking of Christ's return, which, and he's going to establish his earthly kingdom. So mountains in Scripture often represent earthly kingdoms or empires. And I think it's probably better to see the seven mountains as seven kings and kingdoms described in verse 10 and not referring specifically and uniquely to the Roman Catholic Church headquartered in Rome. Again, I personally think that Mystery Babylon is bigger than just the Roman Catholic Church. Again, remember it's been around from the beginning uh, since the time of Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. Thousands of years before the Roman Catholic Church existed, Mystery Babylon spawned all false religious systems on the face of the earth, including the Roman Catholic Church, which has in it, I believe, many true believers. And yet it itself, they're, they're, if they're true believers, folks, listen, it's not because of the Catholic Church, it is in spite of the Roman Catholic Church. If a person believed everything that the Roman Catholic Church taught on salvation, they would never, ever see heaven. Because the Catholic Church mixes faith and works. And Paul tells us in Galatians, if we try to mix faith and works together, we fall from grace, we divorce ourselves from the work of Christ, because God will not share his glory with another and God wants the full credit for the work that he has done in our redemption. And so uh, you cannot add any work to salvation, otherwise you cannot have it. If you don't receive it as a free gift, by just receiving it and saying, Thank you, Father, or thank you, Lord, I'm totally unworthy of this incredible gift of eternal life. But I receive it by faith because you said I could have it if I would receive your Son by faith. And he freely gives it. If you say, well, God, thanks. And here's what I'm going to do for you now to earn some of this. God says, forget it. You can't have it. Because if you don't take it as a free gift, you don't get it at all. And so the tragedy is how many Roman Catholics who have lived all their life in obedience to the church's teaching and have done many good works thinking that that was going to earn them their salvation 
have been excluded from heaven. And you can read about the horrific scene on that day in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23, when they stand before him and are absolutely horrified that they won't be getting into heaven because, after all, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do many good works in your name and cast out demons and so on? And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. So this mystery of Babylon has spawned all false religions on the face of the earth, including the Roman Catholic Church. I do think, as I said last time, the Roman Catholic Church is going to play a major role in organizing the world into a one-world church, bringing all faiths together at the time of the Antichrist. So uh, I'm not saying they won't have a major role in it. I just don't think uh, it's only speaking of them, Mystery Babylon. I think it encompasses much more than that. And also, if you think about it, the angels' call for discernment, spiritual discernment, would have been pointless if the seven mountains were an obvious geographical reference to Rome. That would have been a no-brainer. That would have been easy. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. day, by day.